Welcome to the Superhumans Inc. podcast, where we curate and discuss the latest technologies, people, and ideas that are transforming the planet. Okay, welcome to Superhumans Inc. My name is Christian. Today, my guest is Calla Rose Ostrander. Calla Rose is a strategic advisor to individual as individuals and organizations dedicated to the well-being of people and the planet. She specializes in climate change and agricultural policy, science communications, and movement building. Since 2013, she has worked to support the advancement of carbon farming, compost production, and climate beneficial material economies in California. In partnership with John Wick and the partner organizations of the Marin, Marin Carbon Project, Calarose has supported the successful scaling of regenerative agriculture to the state scale through strategic organization, economic development, local and state policy, and communications. In 2008-2013, Calarose served as the climate change project manager for the city and county of San Francisco. That's actually where I want to jump in first. That was the thing that really fascinated me. So welcome, Calarose. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for uh, having me on this morning. Thanks for coming. This is really exciting for us. Are you um, are you currently in San Francisco? No, I'm not actually. I'm on the western slope of Colorado in a little town called Peonia with my family. Oh, okay, great. Beautiful. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Are you are you close to Grand Junction? Yes. Yeah. We're about an hour and 20 minutes from Grand Junction. I have a friend that moved out there recently and will not stop raving about it. He says it's the undiscovered part of Colorado. Yeah, but you should tell him not to tell other people that. <laughs> <laughs> so he was right. <laughs> Got to stay that way. Well, cool. Thanks again for coming on. I do wanted to, um, I want to jump in because this was the part that really interested me. I know San Francisco is probably a leader globally in terms of climate change. So, um, do you, uh, do you want to start by kind of telling us a little bit about what you did there? Yeah. So San Francisco is a leader globally. And it's also, I think it's important to understand a little bit about why. It's a combined city and county, which is very rare. It's the only one in California. So its jurisdiction is really large. Um, and it has a board of supervisors, but it also has a mayor. And having the type of resources that a county does with the executive authority of a mayor makes for a very functional government structure. So large resource base, highly functional government structure, um, very democratic, but also with an executive power. Um, that means it's really able to move. Uh, the county of LA is the opposite, right? You have this vast and sprawling county. It has no authority, no executive authority. And then you have the city of LA, which is very small, but you have a mayor who has a lot of executive authority. So San Francisco has them both together. And it makes for a very powerful type of um, democratic structure, which I think is really awesome. And part of the reason why they're able to be so progressive on things to really represent folks because it's really functional. So they are, um, they are a leader. They've been a leader in climate change. They're one of the first cities to sign on to climate action way back at the end of the 90s. Um, and they also were the first city to get towards zero waste, you know, first city to have composting and recycling. Um, they have incredible, um, you know, um, groundwater or sorry, water retention systems in the city, open space parks, wetland restoration. They've been very progressive on a lot, a number of things, which is counter to its history, right? San Francisco was an imperial power. They dammed the Hetch Hetchy Valley, which was a valley as beautiful as Yosemite. There's a big reservoir there now. Um, they, you know, consolidated a lot of resources. <clears throat> it was a very strong capitalist imperial power that has now, at this point, become in a leader in the environmental movement. And you know, people travel all over to San Francisco to learn about the policies that we do there and the programs we do there and how we do them. So it was a really um, great experience to work for them. Also, the people there that I worked with were really incredible and we remain friends and colleagues still today. So what were some of the, the initiatives there? Um, were you guys focused on uh, you know, cleaning up oceans? Was it soil health? Was it just reducing waste, standard issue? Yeah, um, well, you know, the ones that I was focused on was climate change and climate change is a really broad umbrella. It has to do with all of those things, you know, and transportation. Um, so we, when I was there creating the climate action plan for San Francisco, we came up with these goals, zero, 50, 100. And that was zero waste, 50% sustainable transportation and 100% renewable energy. 
And those were our goals that we were then working on. And then we added this other one at the end called roots. And that was all about carbon sequestration. So, so 0, 50, 100 roots. Now it's cool because since then they've actually gotten to 80% sustainable transportation or sustainable mode share. And that's so now they have 0, 80, 100 roots. Um, so we worked on the whole gamut. I'd say probably the most successful of the programs was the zero waste program. It had been going for 20 years, really successful. You know, all, all restaurants, all businesses, all residents composting, recycling, and feeling really good about it, knowing why they were doing it. I think one of the most challenging ones was that 100% renewable energy one. That's something we pushed through while I was there. And that that told me, took, taught me a lot about the backroom politics of government and you know the um the staying power of entrenched interests especially like energy interests can be very very powerful and it took a lot of um i watched a lot of house of cards i'll just say that the re the real life show not the uh netflix show right well I, I enjoyed watching the netflix show because it helped relieve the real life situation <laughs> oh man so so that's a good, uh, so what was, what was hard? What was hard to get done and why? What, so how hard is it? I mean, if, if San Francisco generally is kind of a leader and you are experiencing difficulty getting through common sense policy, um, what hope is there for other cities and states that aren't quite so? Yeah, I mean, it definitely can feel that way, you know, especially when I think people forget that government's job in large part is actually to regulate a market. So it sets rules and then businesses participate in that market. And they're really set up in a collaborative way or copacetic way. And when you try to shift that, when you try to move one business out that's really established, it's hard, you know, like there's if there's not a transition plan, um, if they haven't been incentivized to do so. And I think this is actually a really great example because the waste business, Recology, that the city contracted out to, the zero waste team took two decades to transition them to provide recycling and composting. And they planned it. They were like, you know, in three years, we're going to make it so that the rates for the black bin, the trash bin are more expensive than the rates for the compost bin. And in eight years, we're going to make the compost bin free. And then in 10 years, we're going to make it mandatory. So everyone has to do it. And they really rolled that transition out over a long period of time and allowed the business to transition. What with energy, it was really challenging and we didn't have that sort of relationship with the energy company. And so we'd been trying for a decade, but even before I got there to, to transition to 100% renewable energy, to give citizens the option to buy 100% renewable energy. But that would entail public and private partnership that you would That's have to right. set up, right? Right. So the city would mandate it. And then the, the companies would have to provide it. And unlike in, in zero waste, there wasn't that long-term relationship. And so not in that way. I mean, there, you know, PG&E, which was the energy company, which you've probably heard a lot about, they're responsible for a lot of bad things like explosions and causing fires. Um, they had become pretty entrenched and gave a lot of money to like the mayor or, you know, the board of supervisors. And so you get these relationships between donations and elected officials that make it challenging to sort of really do really strong work. But you also have sort of this problem in that there wasn't a, you know, there was never any back and forth that allowed them to really transition softly. So we had to push for this big strong transition. And it was crazy. I mean, like they would get meetings hosted during the day so no one could come. They would you know, make it so that they'd get their union to show up and bring all these Chinese people who didn't know why they were there and be like, it's going to impact the Chinese community. And the Chinese people would be like, why are we here? Like, what are we doing? And, you know, it's just, it gets really dirty and it's not that it's, I'd say corrupt, but they know the system super well and then they leverage the system. And so what we, what I ended up having to do, so when you work for the government, you're not allowed to be an activist. But what we figured out was there was a small group of activists from the Sierra Club. There were like seven of them, you know, and these people are like kind of kooky, right? They don't have normal daytime jobs. They might be retired. They might be the, you know, who knows what their background is, but certainly like all the really smart people would leave San Francisco and go work at Google in the day. And I couldn't get them to show up for anything. 
but we got this small group of activists and we started sending all the information to them like oh, oh there's going to be a meeting now there's going to be a meeting here there's going to be you know like this is when you if you wanted to comment on this thing this is when you could show up so we just started providing a lot more information to this small group of activists that was led by this young woman um jessica and they kind of got in and over the course of a year these seven people through like demanding information demanding records and daylighting records showing up and giving testimony really shifted the whole game and so then we were we were able to get 100 renewable energy passed as an option um and so i think it speaks to both the entrenchment of vested interest in government but also the power of a couple people who are really able to devote the time to take part in the process. And that showed me that the process still really works. You just got to understand it. And it's challenging for the public to understand it. And that's the biggest hurdle that we have. And the time necessary. I mean, right. and the time necessary. how many right. years did that take? Well, cumulatively over 10, <laughs> but that that activism portion, it took about a year and a half to get that through. Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. So yeah. I do, I'm interested in diving into some of these. So we, we talked about this umbrella and about all the different areas we have to do work in. And I'm interested in, in actually talking a little bit more about some of the projects or in soil health or in air cleaning up the air or renewable energy, which if you want to just pick one and say, which one are we doing the best at right now, in your opinion? Well, I think that the renewable energy transition is underway, right? We see that in the price of solar coming down. We see that in wind power. We've got a lot on the geothermal market. I mean, these technologies are now competitive with a lot of the fossil fuel energies that you see out there. And that is because the government, you know, two decades ago, put a lot of money into incentives to allow those technologies to develop. And now we're at a point where they don't need those subsidies anymore. They are now competitive with fossil fuel energy. And, you know, people will say like, like oh, well, they needed subsidies and fossil fuel energy has a ton of subsidies as well. So to think that like there are somehow unfair platforms of competition, they're not, you know, really those subsidies were given to renewable energy to give them a fair platform of competition with fossil fuels. And the result is now you see the public and utilities wanting more of that renewable energy. Big companies like Google drove a lot of that investment by saying, we're going to build our own energy sources. You know, our cities in California saying, we're going to choose 100% renewable to offer to our citizens. These things really help drive the marketplace. Um, you know, you see Navajo Reservation now shifting over from trying to get rid of those coal plants and now building more solar and building more renewable capacity. And so I really think we're doing a good job on the renewable side, and that's going to open up a whole doorway for, you know, the Tesla model for electrified transportation. And that's also something that's like really up and coming. It's not quite there yet, but I think in a couple of years, it'll be able to fly outside of its government subsidies. So I think we're doing a really good job. Are you referring to Hyperloop? Is that, is that electrical? What do you mean by electrical transportation or just oh, like Tesla or, you know, your Chevy Volt or like a car that you plug in, you know, we've got the hybrid Prius is like very common. There's hybrid systems and it's SUVs now, but the full electric vehicle, I think is what's on the horizon that's coming, you know, because we've got this cheap renewable energy now or affordable renewable energy. The next thing you'll really see is the electrification of transportation. So that's where we're, that's where we're winning. Um, yeah, I think on the electricity side, we're really winning. It was a big struggle. It took a long time, but here we are, and we're doing good. So it's 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 setting the example in some ways. So we're starting to see a mold that we can kind of cut and paste into mm -hmm. other areas, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's a really good example because right now, now where we are with, let's say, soil health or agriculture, is really needing a lot of that similar thinking of you know how do you a spur innovation. How do you um, create fair playing fields for, you know, regenerative agriculture to be to be able to be capitalized in the same way that conventional agriculture can be capitalized? And, you know, those are those are government structures. Those are government subsidies, insurance, commodity markets, things that make the banks give loans to corn and soy, but not give loans to diversified small scale or organic farms. Mm -hmm. And that's that's not like 
the bias in the government saying we don't like organic, it's the way that the system is set up. And so the economy, the political economy has to shift. But I think we can look to how we shifted the political economy of energy and say, okay, now we're it's time to do soil and waste and agriculture. Let's go ahead and do those. You know, waste is more challenging because um, you don't have like state or, or a federal government control. It's very local. It's city by city. Every, every city manages their waste individually or county. And so those have to be like best practice examples that are built up. And I spend a lot of time identifying cities that are like leaders, you know, like Cleveland or Austin or Boulder, Colorado, that we can develop out to show people how it can work. You know, San Francisco showed people how it can work in one way. We're look, working on other examples so people can look at those cities and say, oh, okay, well, I'm sort of like Cleveland. I'll do it like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I think waste is going to be, um, you can't do it all at once. Agriculture, we could reform the farm bill and the whole system would change all at once. So really? there's, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So you're just fighting special interest on that to reform a bill. Yeah, I mean, the Farm Bill is like the seventh or eighth largest piece of federal funding, like of all the things we fund, you know, and it's like there's like three military categories and then there's like housing and transportation and then there's the Farm Bill. Wow. Yeah, so, so it's a massive piece of government, federal government subsidy. And it also has a huge effect on our whole economy and, you know, also on world economies. We People don't think about this a lot, but commodity market. It's like corn and soy or rice and wheat. Um, the government creates those markets in order to have the farmers make sure they have some place to sell into, right? So when you hear about rice being dumped on an African country repeatedly so that they don't have the economy to grow their own food because they're getting like food from US aid food, what is that doing? That's a commodity market that subsidizes our farmers while simultaneously depressing the development of an agricultural economy somewhere else. You know, there's crop insurance, which says like, you know, if you fail because of the weather or whatever happens, you know, we're gonna bail you out. Crop insurance is not an insurance program, it's a guaranteed bailout program for farmers. Just like, if, if you grow a commodity, we guarantee to bail you out, right? So that's a huge incentive to grow corn or soy or cow feed or whatever that base commodity is, which isn't really necessarily food. So mm -hmm. we have a commodity system. We don't necessarily have a food system. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the leverage that the farm bill has is tremendous in terms of if we were to change that, there's one coming up here in two years. We're starting to work on it now. It's a two year process. They get changed every four to five years. Um, we could totally shift our agricultural economy through reforming the farm bill. What, what would a good shift look like for you? Well, um, what we see in agriculture, regenerative agriculture, is that diversified farms are better for the environment and they're better for the farmer. Um, if a farmer has, what I mean by diversified is growing more types of crops than just one. So instead Getting of just from growing, mono, mono agriculture. Right. So instead of just growing soy, you know, you're growing, maybe you've got an alfalfa and a small grain rotation and you have cows grazing and, you know, you're going to sell that beef organically and you're going to do some hay. So you're selling hay and small grains and your beef. Um, maybe you're diversifying into a vegetable crops where you have six or seven crops. Maybe you have some tree crops like hazelnuts or chestnuts that you're putting in there. You know, these really more beautiful ecologically representative farms actually are more economically economical for the farmer in the long run because they have different sources of income right right and because those ecosystems are more resilient to drought or to flooding or to extreme heat and so they perform better over time and you see a lot now like crops in extreme heat situations failing crops with cover crops and trees in them are not failing so, you know, in terms of both a climate change and an economic development, I think if we can incentivize diversification instead of commodity, like we really decided to incentivize large scale, cheap commodities. We can totally decide to incentivize diversified ecologically and economically beneficial crops and crop systems. And those are things that can be set within that farm bill. So 
maybe instead of, you know, if you're going to get insurance, you have to have a diversified system. You have to increase your soil health because we know increasing soil health actually decreases your risk of failure in the event of an extreme weather event. So, you know, if you want this insurance program, you need to increase your soil health and we're going to provide education for you on how to do that. We have all of the systems in place to do that. We just need to redirect them so that they can push that go button. I mean, our agricultural system is impressive and all we just have to redirect its focus. In terms of production and output or impressive in efficiency? Both. I mean, just the sheer amount of calories we produce every year and the fact that like we have we've kept our farmers in business because we decided it was crucial for global security or our own food security to not have farmers go out of business. That's why we have the crop insurance program so that we make sure we always have farmers. And, you know, unfortunately, there's some perverse incentives now with it that have created sort of a people are caught, they're stuck, they might go to their bank to get a loan for corn and soy and they can, but they go to their bank to get a loan to transition to, you know, grazing or regenerative crop management and they can't get it because those things are not insured by the crop insurance system. And the bank's going to give a loan to something they know is guaranteed and they're not going to give a loan to something that's not. Right. So, you know, that's a pretty straightforward piece of finance that we would shift across the country if we shifted the farm bill. I mean, the thing is that farmers are shifting anyway without the farm bill. They're like, if they can get over that first three-year hurdle of capitalization, farmers want to do this. They would rather have more income. They would rather be more productive in the they long need run. A bridge loan or something like that. Right. That kind of it. Like they just need a guarantee for the first 36 months or so. Yeah, you just need yeah. capital. Like you need capitalization and and you need to understand time. You know, we're talking a lot about or I'm talking about a lot about time here. Like government takes time, farming takes time. Like yeah. you're not just gonna plant one crop one year you've never planted before and it's gonna be perfect. No. Yeah. You're gonna have to like figure out, well, what's the right cover crop mix and what's the right fertility? And that's going to take you two or three years to figure it out. But by the time you get there, your value will have appreciated so much. But when we have these loans that have short, when like short paybacks, like a five-year loan where you have to pay principal on your first year, forget it. The, no, no farmer can afford that. Farmers are already, farmers along with veterans have the highest rate of suicide in our country. And they're underwater financially, like they're in debt, they're exposed to a ton of chemicals, they're isolated. You know, we have a real crisis in our farm system that we're not really talking about, both environmentally and from a human perspective. I was going to say, some of those food documentaries, the big ones that came out years ago, talked about the state of the small farmer and how they're getting wedged out by, by corporate farming. Has that changed? Is that still the case? Can the small farmers still make it? Are they doing okay? Has policy reversed a little bit in their favor? Well, you know, it's really funny, this whole thing with COVID. Um, I just, a friend of mine sent me this text message this morning. And she's like, look at what Fox News published. <laughs> they, you know, it's the case that right now the small farmer is thriving. So if you have a diversified small farm and you've already figured out how to get your product to market without that middleman, you're actually doing really well right now. Um, and that's because so much of the farm system that's ground to a halt is that big, like scaled distribution yeah. system. And, you know, we have these concentrated processing facilities like meat plants or grain mills and farmers or ranchers who have like a butcher shop in their county or a mill on their farm or they're selling vegetables to a farmer's market or directly to their customers they're all thriving, like they're doing great right now. It's the farmers who are reliant on the commodity system that are stuck and out of luck because that commodity system has failed on multiple levels. You say that all the farmers markets around me have been bank gangbusters. There's lines yeah. every Saturday. Yeah. Yeah. Michael Wallen just published this great article on how CSAs or community shared agriculture boxes are at a all time high. So, you know, if you've got, if you're signed up for a CSA, if you're a farm that can provide a CSA, you know, you're, you're sold out, you're doing well. I live right down the street as it, as it happens, um, from Blue Hill Stone Barn. Oh yeah. Dan Barber Project. Yeah. He, this is what he says. This is what he's been advocating for. I didn't realize that. I don't know. Do you ever, have you brushed elbows with him? Well, I know they're, yeah, no, not personally, but I know their work. 
yeah, big proponent of diversified agriculture and kind of showing how to do it makes the case that you don't need the pesticides because you have less pests. Right. They're doing it too, right? Because they help. Yeah. So there's so much. That's really interesting. You know, the pesticide thing is so interesting because we have this paradigm in human, Western human society where it's about control and like domination. And the way we exert control is often through, I'd say like an unhealthy relationship with death. So, you know, not like a good relationship with death, like composting is a good relationship with death. But with the pesticides, you know, we're spraying all those chemicals on the plants. We're feeding the plants nutrients so they don't have to interact with the soil anymore. And all their roots that get nutrients from the soil kind of atrophy. So you have plants that are not as nutrient dense because they're being fed synthetic fertilizer. So they have fewer nutrients in them. They're less nutritious. And then you have plants that are also more susceptible to pests because they don't have all the little antibodies that they would need or get again from the soil community. So mm. there was a really interesting study that was done this year in California with a tomato farmer. And what they found is that the tomatoes that were grown in really healthy or high carbon soil um, had a much, much, much greater natural pest resistance than the mm -hmm. tomatoes that were grown with conventional fertilizers and the pesticides. So even with the pesticides, and that's because the plant was able to like, oh, I'm being bitten, I have an immune response. And because the soil feeds the plant's immune response, the plants were able to create an immune response and kick the pests off. Without that connection to the soil and to the microbial community, the plant has no immune response. It's a, a severely limited immune response. And so it just continues to get eaten. So you're reliant upon the chemical to kill the bugs. Well, the chemical also kills the bugs in our digestion system. You know, we've discovered this thing about glyphosate. It was like, well, glyphosate isn't bad for people. But glyphosate's really bad for all the little bugs that live in your stomach that help you digest everything. So, you know, when you're killing the microbiome, you're killing your immune response. And we see that in the soil and with plant health. We also see that in our bodies. You know, all this inflammation we have today, all the infl inflammatory related diseases, they're largely caused by a lack of gut health. And what's that caused by? It's caused by all these microbiome being killed off by a lot of these chemical fertilizers that we ingest through the food we eat. So it's interesting. Yeah. Um, I'm, you know, what I'm really interested in too is, is how much in, in your line of work and in these policies that have to get kind of pushed through, um, how much technology is really needed. So I want to use two examples. One is one I just talked about. Dan Barber is largely, I think he's pretty, <clears throat> The systems he's saying that we should implement are smarter, but they're not new. It doesn't it doesn't really take a lot of new technology. They're centuries old. We've always known that that that's better for things like soil health, and we know how crucial soil health is. Yeah. On the other end of it, there's a company in California, and I, I just had to look them up. Sorry if you saw me typing, but I couldn't remember the name of them. They're called Carbon Engineering. Uh -huh. You might have heard of them. They take carbon out of the air, and they've gotten funded by – they were invested. They did a Series A or B, and they got Exxon and Chevron to get in because it looks like this – new kind of engineering technology might buy us more time to transition. And this is a radically new technology that is not centuries old. So do you see it being really more one or the other or, or a hand-to-hand -hand approach between the two, between new technologies that might have a large impact that can help us get to where we need to be as far as carbon footprint or, or overall footprint? Or is it really just a return to principles of sustainable agriculture, for example, that we know have existed for centuries? Yeah, look, I don't think we're going backwards. Like, I, I'm not a, a pioneer type prepper person. Um, we're not we're not going to go back. So um, but I think there's a lot of that that we can move forward with. And I'm also not an either or person. I'm like a both and person. So I think, you know, there's a role for technology. Of course, there's a role for appropriate technology. In my work, I choose to focus 100 percent on things that create life and that support life because i know that life begets more life and that this principle of abundance that we see with regenerative agriculture that we see when we take the things that are dead or no longer useful and compost them and it feeds new life and then we get more life than we had before like that principle of compounding abundance or compounding interest in the system only happens with life 
It doesn't happen with technology. And so I think, you know, there's plenty of technology is fine. Like we have a political economy that supports the capitalization of technology and it is beautiful and we've done really well with it. What we don't have is a cultural or political economic system that supports life um, and like life on the planet. And so in my work, I devote 100% of my time to that. That's really well put. That's really well put. Yeah, I have a lot of really smart mentors. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's poetic. That's really, really beautifully put. So um, where have you, uh, how much research have you been involved in um, to kind of build consensus around these initiatives? Have you been a part of some research? Yeah, so a lot of the work that I've done with the Marin Carbon Project and with John Wick and Peggy Rathman, who are the co-founders of that project, um, was with science. So, you know, just because I'm not heavy on technology doesn't mean I'm not heavy on science. A lot of this information about soil being a carbon sink, how quickly we can get it to be a carbon sink, um, that comes from new information. We didn't know that scientifically 10 years ago. So when people are like, well, why, why is this here? It's like, oh, it's new. You know, and a lot of this science is also new. I, I appreciated um, Mr. Lee on that one of your episodes that I watched talking about, you know, the role that science and technology can play in explaining a lot of things that we may sort of like see, but not really understand. You know, and I think there's a lot of that work and science never is 100% correct. That's not how it works. You're constantly learning. And I think that what I see now is more and more science confirming um, maybe traditional indigenous knowledge or traditional ecological knowledge, but saying, oh, well, here's the scientific pathway. Here's how that works. Here's the prince, the core principle of why that works that way. So I'm excited because I'm seeing a lot of science start to come together with that indigenous knowledge um, and that ecological knowledge. And I'm seeing places where, where the indigenous ecological knowledge is really leading, like on fire and fire management, the indigenous systems of knowledge that are still intact are so much better at managing fire than our modern fire science. Wow. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, I had this heard this wonderful lecture from a man who's the head of the USDA Forest Service for the Northeast, or sorry, the Northwest, and he talks about how whenever he goes into a new area, he tries to find the tribe and see if there's anyone in the tribe that has knowledge because they'll understand the fire system for that forest and like when and how to burn and how hot to burn or how frequently to burn. And um, he just says that that's now his policy across the board is he'll hire local fire managers because they're so much more successful at it. So. You know, I think that we're seeing a lot of modern science catch up and then we're also seeing modern science teach us things that we just didn't even know. Like we didn't know you could sequester carbon in the soil like this. That's pretty cool. Um, so I definitely have been involved in a lot of research in terms of fund, helping fund that research. I do a lot of development work. So fundraising for research. But again, because in the environmental movement, we're horizontal. So like um, let's see, like a big company is vertically integrated, like an oil company is like, I've got my R and D, I have my public relations, I have my government branch, I have my communications, I have my, you know, the people on the ground who are getting the oil, the distribution system, it's vertically integrated. Social movements are horizontally integrated. So we have no shared verticals. So a scientist who's getting funding from a company has a vertical system that that science get plugged into and gets disseminated out through. So applied right. science, communicated science. In environmental spaces or social spaces that are not the subject of a single company, we have to work horizontally. And so a lot of my work is taking that science and then distributing it throughout the system. So media, communications, um, you know, philanthropy, uh, policy, you know, taking it saying, Given this science, this is the policy we should be pursuing. Um, and so I try to stay close to the to the researchers and to the scientists who are leading in the field that I'm in so that I can understand what they're finding out, what their needs are, but then I can also take their work and bring it out into the public in a way that if I was running a company, I would push it out through my company. Um, so we, we're doing a lot of R&D, but again, R&D happens horizontally. Uh, in, in the environmental movement. And that's amazing. Yeah, I think right. that's something I learned from the Rathmans when I worked for them. Yeah. Um, 
Peggy's father had founded Amgen, which was one of the largest and first biotech companies in the country. And he did that by doing science out of a trailer in his backyard at first. And he just R&D'd everything. And then Peggy really learned, and then John, her husband, was with them for much of that time, really learned what that looked like. And so they applied those same scientific principles of research and development to the environmental movement, which hadn't really been done for soil health before. So, you know, they worked with the best scientists. When they failed, they learned and started again. You know, they spent millions of dollars in this space. And I think I really have taken that model and understand now, you know, the value in investing in science repeatedly to do this research and development. And then when you find something to bring it out into the world. Right. That um, the carbon sequestering yeah. in the soil, does that have anything to do with the mycelium network? This is like a new fascinating um, topic. Paul, I think Paul Stamets is probably the guy that made it. He's been like all over. He was on a few podcasts. Is that, are those two things connected or are those different? Oh no, absolutely. I mean, Louis Schwartzberg has a great new film out with, he did with Paul um, called Fantastic Fungi and it's just mm -hmm. beautiful. Um, so if you want to look at that, you can absolutely, the relationship is uh, direct. So the mycelium network, which is a lot of different types of organisms, it's not just one organism, but it works by um, bringing nutrients or minerals to the plants and in exchange, it gets carbon. So plants photosynthesize, fungi can't photosynthesize. Um, but plants can take sunlight and water and carbon and turn it into sugar. It's kind of amazing, right? So the fungi work in exchange with the plants or the mycelium work in exchange with the plants. So the plants may send sugar through the fungal web or through the mycelium web um, out to other plants in that community. And the fungi will take a little bit of that sugar. It's kind of like their exchange. It's, it's what feeds them and in return they'll bring nutrients back or minerals back because the plants can't really access minerals and rocks but the fungi can break those minerals down and take them to the plants so it's just this really beautiful system that exists underground that's like all alive and feeding itself and feeding each other reciprocally i'm really glad that you're that you're well versed on this because i have a, i have another question that fascinated me but i don't know if it's totally true it's that there's a there's some sort of communication via the magnetism of particles between soil and clouds? Yes, okay. That so, is true? I don't know a ton about this, but I've been reading about it. Um, and well, it's so complicated, right? So in our modern, how do I say this? We're really, really good at physics as a society <laughs> and we're not really good at biology. Like we just don't really understand the biology as well as we do the physics. So. Um, we also have this really great field of chemistry, but again, like biochemistry is, is we know about, but it's not as well articulated. Um, so when you put all of these together, like biogeochemistry, and you start looking at these global cycles, um, I don't, what I don't see is a lot of biogeochemists looking yet at these like physics, physics things like magnetics or particles, um, but what I do know is there was a big meta study done recently where they looked at the correspondence of rain over dry climates in the Western United States. And what they found was in soils that had more carbon, clouds passing over them were much more likely to rain than when the clouds passed over areas that had low soil carbon. That is so gnarly. Right? And so you begin to think about it and it's like, you know, you see this with island nations too, where they've been deforested and lost their rain and then the forests are rebuilt and the rain comes back. So between the stomata of the plants like opening and closing and the small water cycles that plants create in their living systems, as well as all of the biology in the soil that's healthy when there's more carbon in it, you begin to see these interactions with the larger water cycles. And because again, there's charges associated with those, those, those are also changed. Um, here's another good example. So the plants create, do photosynthesis, they create sugars, they share them with the ground. Although sugars are carbohydrates, all of the carbon and carbohydrates comes from the air. So the plants have moved the carbon from the air into the ground that 
carbon in the ground then attracts more water. So water follows carbon. And then that when the soil has more carbon and has more water, the electromagnetic capacity of the soil changes, called the cation exchange capacity. And all of a sudden that, that switches from a more positive charge to a more negative charge and it attracts all these nutrients. And, and so the particles, the minerals, the nutrients then stick around in the soil because the charge of the soil has changed. And that's part of the reason why you get plants that have more nutrients in them or you have better nutrient efficiency in soil with high carbon because these big biogeochemical cycles are all linked up and they and they stack upon each other like carbon comes in water follows carbon you get a change in your charge then the minerals and the nutrients stick around and they start cycling differently so they're all stacked upon each other in this like really beautiful complex way that we're just beginning to understand 100%. I think the paradigm is probably people think that deserts exist because the rain stopped going to that particular region and then you got a desert. And this would suggest maybe the opposite, that the soil, then my, the network was destroyed first and then the rain stopped coming. And then you had sort of a, a I don't know if that's, if that would be the case, but anyway. Well, yeah, you have desertification, right? So when we deforest or we denude the landscapes, you get a desert and I, I come from the desert. So I have to defend like natural deserts, you know, like the saguaro cactus or the Joshua trees, um, much of the deserts in the Southwest and Mexico, they're actually natural desert systems and they have a balanced relationship with water and rain. You don't mm -hmm. see it as much because their main photosynthesizers aren't trees or grasses, but they're these little cyanobacteria cryptocrusts that like grow on the soil that look like little mounds of soil and you wouldn't really see them except for when they're like, don't walk off the trail because you'll destroy the crusts. Like you're destroying the photosynthesizer. So natural deserts exist in a balance with water where water is more scarce. Human created deserts, like the Sahara is growing so much. Why? Because they're cutting down the Congo and they're like plowing the land. And so you get these overgrazing, like a lot of the more arid parts of the Southwest especially where I'm now in Western Colorado, it looks like a desert, but it's also been grazed within an inch of its life. Like it doesn't have the capacity to regenerate and so that it loses its capacity to have a small water cycle. And that then creates an entropic collapse of the system where it becomes a man-made desert. You get desertification. You, and you don't have scientists, the initials or MD on the back of your name, your title. I mean, it's incredible how much you've been, you've known from being, I guess, just part of these research projects. This is incredible. Thank you. Well, um, my dad's a geologist and a geophysicist. Yeah. My dad's a geophysicist. Oh, okay. okay. And my godfather worked for NOAA and NIST. So I grew up going to the big national science labs. Oh, okay. So I think I speak and understand science really well. I am not a scientist. Okay. What is, um, now a couple of these questions are Daniel prompted them. So, <laughs> fair warning. Um, what is the AHCC and, um, yeah, I guess we'll start with that because I didn't look that, I didn't have time to look that up. The AHCC? AHCC? Oh, maybe it's, maybe it's an acronym that Daniel was supposed to explain to me that he didn't. Um, what about uh, talking about evolution alongside psychedelics? Oh, I wish I knew more about that. Um... There is a lot of super interesting stuff. Do you know the MAPS people? No. Um, look them up. It's I, Again, I don't remember what the acronym, but it's MAPS. They are doing all these studies on um, both evolution, but psychedelics as medicine. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, I mean, it's fascinating stuff. Again, I don't really know much about it, so I'll have to <laughs> defer that question. Okay. But fair enough. Fair enough. Well, bring us current. So um, what are you working on now? What am I working on now? Um, lots of things. So what's really fun is that I think the last five years, we really were piloting things like, okay, we can get regenerative agriculture to work. Here's the system we're going to rebuild. Let's pilot that system, do pilot science, then maybe we'll demonstrate it. And now we're at this point where it's like, how do we bridge from demonstration into business as usual? Like, how do we get the whole the economy to shift? How do we make it so that all agriculture is regenerative agriculture. And um, that's a big gap to bridge and it won't be bridged with one thing. Obviously farm bill reform would be a huge part of that. 
but um, I have a project that I was super excited about, which is working with a very large fashion brand to create the first pair of regenerative jeans. So that these jeans would be, cotton would be grown in a way that was regenerative for the soil. Instead of using coal tar dye, which is the dye that you get most indigo color from, most of our dyes are actually synthetic chemical dyes that interfere with our endocrine system. So getting all the like fossil fuel dyes out of clothes. So a botanical indigo that is like grown in regenerative practices in the US, um, have it dyed, woven, sewn, and then um, cut in the United States. So having a whole line of denim that would be completely regenerative, local economies, developing infrastructure here in the US. Um, that was a really fun project. Uh, fingers crossed that they go for the whole thing. Um, and you know, if not, we'll just start our own business because <laughs> that's kind of where we're at. Um, another thing I've been working on is like, how do you scale up composting? Compost is like the end of a life cycle and the beginning of the next life cycle. So doing a lot of work right now with the state of California and other states to help develop um, economies and infrastructure for composting, like at scale, you know, so that everyone has a compost facility, everyone has community composting. Creation of soil is like the basis of food security. And like we've talked about, you know, healthy soil can also be the basis of a healthy water cycle in your in your area, especially in the Western United States. Um, so I've been doing a lot of work on the compost. You know, people want to learn how to invest in it. Well, how do I invest in regenerative ag? So I've been doing a lot of research on where and how, what companies are available to do direct investment, whether that's loans or capitalization or land tenure. Um, but those are challenging. What? Crowdfunding? what? Have you looked at have you looked at crowdfunding for some of those? Yeah, the thing right now again, I think that it's just people are. I don't know what happened when we like took civics out of education, but like people have forgotten. Like I don't know. It's like did you read all, all of Adam Smith? Because if you read it to the end, you would know that the government creates the marketplace. And so until we change the government structure, the political economy of agriculture, it's very difficult to create startups in ag like it's very challenging to have new investment in ag like you can buy a property and create a farm and build a product but it's a lot of hard work so if you want to do like venture capital you have to shift the farm bill because it's just it's such a captured space and we subsidize we have a socialized agricultural system people don't use that word but our ag system is almost a hundred percent socialized and given that it is, we should be making choices that are good for people in that Everybody. system. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so I've been looking a lot in that investment space and really trying to talk to people who want to invest and be like, look, if you want to invest, you should invest in shifting the farm bill in the next three years. And then you can have a ton of investments later. And I don't know why it is, but it seems like people on the right seem to understand this super well. and People on the left seem to not understand it at all. Interesting. <laughs> you would think it would be the opposite, no? Well, no, I think that by and large, Republicans understand the law and market economies really, really, really well. And the left has been, this is my opinion, the left has been spoiled by tech and they think that all things are like, can be like tech investments, not realizing how much effort the state of California put into creating markets where tech could thrive. And not to, dis not to disadvantage the entrepreneurs, they're incredibly smart and amazing people. So I'm not taking that from them. You have but to have a market if you're gonna be an entrepreneur. You have to have a market and you have to have the ability to get started, right? You have to have that ability to start up. Everybody's and, vulnerable in the beginning. Right, everyone's vulnerable. You need to be able to attract equity in the beginning and that, and that possibility of equity investment needs to be attractive to bring in that risk, to overcome that high risk early stage. So, you know, government can de-risk that, you know, or government could not be there at all and it would be a different situation. But what I, what I realize is that by and large, my Republican friends understand the role of government and markets much, much better than my liberal friends. That is very interesting. So who do you lock arms with um, <clears throat> in the private sector most? So it sounds like you told me that you're, you you find the research and you find ways to fund the science and then you do a lot of the communications and getting that message out. Um, and then so who, who are the perfect partners? Um, 
who do you like to lock arms with to get these these things pushed through and done? You need a lot of partners. <laughs> um, you know, I'm really lucky to work with some incredible funders. They're really the, the basis to be able to start this. Um, John Wick and Peggy Rathman, the 11th Hour Foundation, the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation, Jenna King in particular has been an incredible sponsor. Um, that Breakthrough Strategies group, uh, you know, really finding funders, family foundations who are willing to um, invest in something larger than just like just this project. You know, like they're where they're willing to invest in the science and the communications and the policy. They're willing to like create, you know, just allow that creative space to exist. And I, I mentioned a lot of them, but relatively they're few and far between who have that sort of tolerance for innovation. Um, but finding those funders and working with them has been an incredible piece of this whole thing because they really allow it to flow and then you can get matching funding from the government or matching funding from other sources. So I do a lot of development work, you know, trying to find partners who really resonate with each other and can engage in something that's maybe more creative or um, more collaborative than, than what they're used to. And then the science partners obviously are incredibly important. Um, I also work a lot with advocacy groups. Um, the reason why I have a business and not just a nonprofit is um, I do a lot of strategy in the policy space. So taking that science and helping communicate it. Uh, so lots of advocates, um, you know, the traditional environmental orgs, but also agricultural lobbyists, you know, those types of unusual bedfellows. And then I honestly believe going back to that exam, for instance, example, if you find seven people in a community who have the time and who are willing to show up to all the things they need to show up to, that's what moves the needle. So you get the money, you get the science, you know, you get some good communications, and then you find those seven people, and you then you can shift the system. So hmm. I choose strategic systems like Los Angeles or Albuquerque or Boulder, Colorado or Cleveland to be like, how do we shift this system? So that then it can shift a larger system and you get this like outward spiraling effect. Um, yeah. So that requires a lot of partners. And how have you, have you found, do you like structure funding differently? Since it sounds like you kind of want investment for a longer term because you're going after bigger macro things. You're doing science policy uh, uh, and communication. So do, are people more, they're, they're happy to like, listen, it's not about the short term. It's about the long term. And you, you help them with that. Yeah, and they're very degrees. It's like a lot of my job is um, finding the fit. It's like, I feel like I'm the mycelium. I have to be like, what do you need? What do you want? What do you, want? you need this? You want this? We'll connect you here. You know, it's like, it's a lot of weaving. It's a lot of like, you know, not everybody is willing to fund everything at once, but you might find a gem of a family foundation that's like, we really want to fund this one thing. And I'm like, that's so great because I have people who want to fund these other things. And now we can do them together, you know, um, but that's pretty unconventional. Basically, most of the people I work with don't understand what I do, but they're like, we like you and you do it well. So <laughs> like it works out, but it's a very unconventional and I'd say creative approach. And, you know, it is a lot like the mycelium. It's like identifying needs and resources and attaching those needs and resources at strategic points so that we can grow synergistically, you know, not grow in widgets, but like grow in synergy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So right now, the, what you're working on right now, what, what's the next step for, let's make that more specific in case, in case my, I have someone in my audience who listens to this and wants to get involved. Um, what is that? So one of the scientists that I work with at Lawrence Berkeley national lab is a, evolutionary biologist in soil science and like microorganisms. And he has this quote, which I'm sure other people have too, but it's like that Darwin idea that it's not about the survival of the fittest, but it's the survival of the fit. Like, can you find your fit? Do you fit within the ecosystem? So is it the survival of the fit? Like, do you understand how you can interact like in reciprocity with the things around you? And in doing so, you enhance, you know, their well-being and your well-being is enhanced. So, you know, it, the first thing when people are interested, I'm like, well, what's your skill set? You know, what are you really good at? What are you passionate about? What can you bring to other people? 
And then let's find your fit. You know, where does that fit into the ecosystem that you are part of? Whether that's an online ecosystem or your community, you know, hometown or your business. So a lot of this is I'm really trying to get people to think about like where they fit and how they can be in relationship with what's around them in a positive way. Um, because healthy ecosystems are relational. Um, the earth systems are stacked and relational. And I think the more we remember that it's a relationship and it's the quality of the relationship that matters, um, the more we're able to both be satisfied personally, but also contribute to something greater than ourselves and have that satisfaction of like being part of a bigger whole and helping the world heal. And really what we're engaged in right now is a massive healing exercise. Like we have a lot of trauma culturally, genetically, historically, and physically with the earth. And so a lot of this is about healing. Like how do we heal? How do we support each other as we heal? How do we support the earth as it heals? So that's like the esoteric answer. The real answer is just start composting in your community. Like if you're interested in this, start a compost hub. Find someone who's composting and support them. Um, compost is the end of the life cycle. It's the beginning of the next life cycle. It recycles our nutrients. We don't have to use synthetic chemicals. We can use natural fertility. Mm -hmm. It puts fertility back in the hands of the earth instead of forcing it fertility through all these synthetics. Um, it's a really valuable thing. So that's what I'd say. If you're interested in healing the earth, find someone in your community who's composting and um, figure out how to support them or start your own compost. What, you listed a few already, but what other nonprofits and organizations do you like that you think are moving the needle? Oh, absolutely. So if you're in the Los Angeles area, I love LA Compost. They are incredible. They have this whole soil plus people motto. And they not only do composting, but they do like potlucks and community exchanges and, you know, finding elders in the community who know how to grow like okra or something weird from Polynesia and teaching children about um, how to grow food. So they're an incredible community organization, LA Compost. Um, I love Kiss the Ground. If you're kind of more also an LA group, they have a soil advocates training program that you can go through um, that'll teach you a lot of the like details of the science, but also how to advocate for um, soil in your communities. Mm -hmm. um, and then, uh, you know, let's see, I work with Mad Agriculture in Colorado, Quivera in New Mexico. They're amazing organizations really um, everywhere. There's a volunteer group that I love that anyone can volunteer, especially if you have technical skills like mm -hmm. analytics or web skills, they're called Nerds for Earth. That's a really fun one. They do great work. Um, and they're volunteers. So you can drop in and be like, hey, I have so many hours to volunteer for this thing. And they'll match you with a project that needs support. And that's oh, wow. a really that's so a great one. Yeah. So if you have technical skills and you want to support an environmental cause, Nerds for Earth will help hook you up with like grassroots organizations that are trying to need technical support, really. Yeah. Cool. And then same, I guess, same question for the corporate sector. Are there any private companies that have been friendly to the cause that you recommend? Oh. Yeah. You know, Dr. Bronner's is like the head of all this stuff. They're like, we're going to be a hundred percent everything all the time. <laughs> so like, wow. Dr. Bronner's cool. is amazing. Their whole supply chain is going to be regenerative within a year or two. Um, they are funding the legalization of psychedelics for medicinal use in multiple States. Um, they are just, they've supported small scale organic cannabis growers to get a premium on their products. Really, Bronner's is an amazing company. Um, I think some other ones that are really good are Annie's. It's They're owned by General Mills, but they do awesome work in their supply chain. Uh, Organic India is a tea company. They're really great. Um, Thrive Market is like your alternative to Amazon shopping. They do delivery of groceries. Um, you know, those are some of the brands that I work with. Um, you know, you'd be surprised that the Mars Corp Corporation is actually doing some good stuff. Um, but, you know, I think that those brands and then, of course, your like local health food store, they're always doing good stuff. So those are some of the brands that I work the most closely with um, and I think are really leading this regenerative space. Well, Carl Rose, thank you so much for coming on. You're a, you are a wealth of knowledge. 
<laughs> I know so I'm much. So, I'm so happy and intrigued, and I'm I probably am going to have questions that come just from this just from this interview. So I don't know if you'd want to come back on, but I'd be happy to have you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Anytime, and maybe we could have more of a conversation now that you've <laughs> gotten the basics out there. So there's so yeah. much to talk about. Yeah, we could have gone down, I think, uh, several rabbit holes. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, I appreciate you and your audience. Thanks so much for having me. All right, thank you. All right, we'll talk soon. Okay, bye-bye.